Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, a day early. Uh, we're going to take a few days off. I hope everybody takes a few days uh, off. We'll, we'll be back doing our regular uh, podcast on Monday. I, I think we have something staff, uh, a Bulwark staff special scheduled for tomorrow. And, you know, I, I've been thinking this morning how many things I have to be thankful for. Uh, health, having survived the pandemic, uh, dogs, of course, uh, family, and, and of course, all of you. And I wanted to say this about the podcast. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about other things that, uh, that we're thankful for, but I am just so thankful for all of our guests who have given their time, uh, their expertise, helped me uh, understand things that I didn't understand. Uh, I am I'm thankful for our producers, Jonathan and Katie, who make this possible every single day. And I'm also very, very thankful for all of you for listening uh, to uh, to this podcast, which we've been doing for nearly three years. And I don't take it for granted how lucky I am to be able to sit down here and have interesting conversations every day with smart people who I like and respect, which is saying something uh, in this in this day and age, and then have an audience that is so appreciative and discerning as you are. So uh, once again, thank you very, very much. And I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. So uh, in the category of explaining things that I just have a really hard time understanding, I'm really glad that we were able to get uh, today's guest on, uh, Kristen Dumay, who's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen, thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. You know, you and I were just chatting right beforehand. Your book came out last summer, and it just seems more more timely all the time, uh, you know, especially since we have this this weird conflation of Christianity with with manliness, and I don't know, I you know, I'm I'm familiar with you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just I, I haven't read the Book of Testosterone, which <laughs> which apparently is like the new thing on the right. So uh, it, it's 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 and again, this is something from the outside. It's it's harder to understand. Before we get into that, though, could you help me with something else? Sure. Okay, so now um, I, I I understand that you are not likely to be an expert on demon sex per se. I am not. Okay, so um, I'm not sure who is, but I, I want to play the soundbite that's gone viral from this end times preacher named Sharon Gilbert, who's mm -hmm. describing how um, this alien, um, I don't know, imitated her husband and tried to have sex with her. He claims to be Xerxes. I'm not sure who that is. There's a gang of gargoyles that appears here. And uh, this is sort of the, you know, a tale as old as time. But let me just play a little bit of Sharon Gilbert, who is, who is on television raising money by telling people this story. After Derek and I got married, one night, this other Derek appears in our bed. That's awkward. The real Derek is lying down next to me. No. Other Derek sits right up out of it. It out. startled me. I bet. I knew that was not Derek. And so I asked this critter, who are you? Because he clearly wanted to have sexual relations. And he said, come on, I'm your husband. I said, who are you? And he had the nerve to claim to be Ahasuerus, Xerxes. Well, other Derek 
seriously wanted to invite me to use my free will to do something that was going to pull me away from God. And I asked him again, who are you? He told me the same answer. And I said, I'm not going with you. This was an internal dialogue. Finally, I said, I've had enough in my mind. I reached up. I grabbed his face. And I said, you are a liar. And Jesus is real. And I pulled that face off. Mask. And beneath it was a reptile. So, Kristen, um, (laughs) help me with this. Just, I mean, what, what, what is this? I, you know, I, I'm trying to understand, you know, where this sort of thing fits in. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to imply that, that most or many um, evangelicals are, but I mean, so where does this fit in in the continuum? I have not encountered alien reptile sex in my research um, okay. until now. So it, it's not it's reassuring. normal. Okay. Um, okay. What I will say, though, is a real challenge in the study of white evangelicalism historically and today is figuring out what is fringe and what is mainstream. Right, because uh, on the one hand, you have the the respectable evangelicals, this public face, folks like uh, Russell Moore, you know, David French, and and Ed Stetzer, and you've got Christianity Today, Wheaton College, and and you know they consider themselves the leaders of American evangelicalism, and then you've got a lot of folks like Gilbert. You've got this whole world of televangelism. You've got this populist uh, kind of movement. You've got prophecy folks and end times writers. And, you know, Gilbert uh, is, is, is an author and she, she writes nonfiction and fiction and all this kind of apocalyptic fantasy slash theology writing. And the thing is, many uh, American Christians are are kind of consuming um, across the spectrum from the respectable kind of theological uh, uh, end all the way to this this prophecy writing. And it's really hard to figure out kind of where the center is. So how many people follow her? I mean, how, how big a deal is the reason I'm asking this is is one of the shocks of the last few years has been finding out the people that you thought of as just sort of fringe ha-ha figures. Suddenly we realize, wait, they have some influence. They have people behind them. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't have I don't have clear numbers on that, but I think in in certain circles, uh, you know, these figures that don't that rarely appear on our radars until something like this goes viral, uh, actually have pretty big audiences in certain Ooh. spaces, particularly uh, kind of uh, you know conservative uh, uh, television and and uh, kind of prophecy spaces. If people go online and look this video up, uh, I think the best part of the video is looking at the faces of the guys who are sitting right next to her <laughs> as she's telling this story. I don't know. It's a... So let's talk about um, your book, G- Jesus and John Wayne, which is an interesting title and, and particularly becomes, it seems very relevant now that we have people like Josh Hawley, United States Senator from Missouri, who is explicitly saying that that he wants to make the return of masculinity central to his appeal. And, you know, at, at first, again, once again, I, you, you sort of thought this was a couple of guys out there, you know, trying to be macho and swaggering. But there's clearly something that they are trying to tap into. So this was this was Josh Hawley um, being interviewed by Axios. 
Well, I think what the left is doing is attacking America. They're saying that America is systemically oppressive and men are systemically responsible. Yeah, and he blames liberals for the fact that men don't work, they take too much drugs, they play too many video games, they watch too much porn. Uh, And then, of course, there are these figures like Madison Cawthorn, who makes his manhood very, very central to his, uh, his political appeal. This is Madison Cawthorn. Our culture today is trying to completely demasculate all of the young men in our culture. I mean, you, you can look at the testosterone levels in young men today, and they are lower than throughout all of history. And there's a lot of reasons for this that we can get into later. But my friends, they're trying to demasculate the young men in this country because they don't want people who are going to stand up. And so I'm telling you, all of you moms here, the people who I said were the most vicious in our, uh, in our movement, if you are raising a young man, please raise them to be a monster. Raise... Raise them to be a monster. I, so for, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure whether is demasculating a word. <laughs> I think it is now. I think okay. it is now. So yeah. we're, we're, obviously we're seeing this as as an increasing theme. So, you know, this does seem a lot of, you know, it does seem a little strange odds. And a lot of people, you know, the staunch support for Kyle Rittenhouse is the manliest men. Yeah. But but, you know, you argue that they these themes that they're sketching are drawn from teachings that are commonplace in the white evangelical community. Can you explain yes. that? Yeah. So here here we're getting more into the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, even though it so- might sound extreme to people outside this world, there is a long history of this kind of language, uh, both kind of the threat of culture, uh, you know, emasculating men, demasculating men. Uh, you know, feminists were to blame, liberals were to blame back in the 1960s, 1970s, and ever since then. And uh, and what we see is this longstanding link between a particular ideal of masculinity, right? They just say masculinity as if we all know what it is. It's been unchanging, but but they're they're you know using this this notion of masculinity, working with this, this specific understanding understanding that it is testosterone fueled it is aggressive it's rugged uh, it will resort to violence when necessary to fulfill this protector role and that has been enmeshed with this culture wars ideology for more than half a century now and it's really important when we hear you know the clips that you played were were, were really telling here the left is at war with us because in, in the in the culture wars, of course, the enemies are our enemies within. Uh, this this rhetoric really started to come to the fore back in the Cold War era, when first the 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 enemy was external, so we need to fight against the threat of communism. You have to fight on the on the battlefields of Vietnam, but then it kind of shifted where the the enemies, the real threats, were within within Christianity, so kind of liberal Christianity within American society as well. So the political left, and that has been consistent, kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, over over the decades, but we we are in a moment of resurgence once again. Okay, let's, I just want to go back to my understanding or my limited understanding of this brand of Christianity, because you know many of these people would would wear the bracelet. You know, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Well, apparently, he'd smash you in the face. Maybe <laughs> the Lord Jesus would would want you to be a monster. How, yeah. What is the nexus there? How do you get from Jesus Christ, the meek will inherit the world? to this notion, this sort of militant white masculinity out there, don't you mess with me, otherwise I'm going to crush you, because 
it seems like that was the other culture that they were, you know, separating themselves from. But I obviously have that wrong. Right, right. I, I mean, it's um, th- they are refashioning Jesus. They are transforming so that that Jesus, meek and mild, they're very explicitly rejecting. And by they, I'm talking about hundreds of white evangelical authors who've been writing on Christian manhood for decades now. This is a huge industry. I first uh, came to this, this whole literature back in the early 2000s. It was actually my students at Calvin University, a, a Christian university, that brought this to my attention. And back in the early 2000s, an incredibly popular book was just sweeping the evangelical world. It was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. It sold more than 4 million copies. Every evangelical guy I knew was reading it in their churches, in their dorm rooms. It was, um, it was everywhere. And, and uh, Eldridge wrote that God is a warrior God and men are made in his God. image. And every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. Now, this is in the early 2000s. And, and wow. at this time, when I actually came to it, the book published in 2001, I came across it in 2005 and uh, early years of the Iraq war. And we had all this survey data coming out showing how white evangelicals were outliers, far and away more likely to support the Iraq war, preemptive war in general, condone torture. And, and so I just you know, asked what might one of these things have to do with the other. And I started to, to just follow this um, um, uh, this ideology and uh, and again dozens of of Christian pastors, hundreds of of pastors, writers, uh, really leaned into this and and transform not just you know Christian manhood, but transform the Jesus of the Gospels himself. So that you know somebody like Mark Driscoll can say Jesus has um, tattoos down his leg and is riding a, a horse, wielding a bloody sword, charging into battle. That's the Jesus of the Gospels, not Mister Rogers. Wait, wait, wait. Where does he find that? I'm I'm paging through. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the favorite book is Revelation. Okay, okay, right. You're gonna, right, you're gonna okay. find some some blood, okay. some swords, uh, right? right? So, yeah. so that that's where they're gonna draw some imagery. Uh, but then, I, explicitly, I could see that from the Old Testament. I mean, this comes Old yeah. Testament stuff, and kind of get that. But the New Testament, no, okay. yeah. So Revelation, okay, all right. Yeah, but then they'll explicitly reject you know other passages in the New Testament, like love your enemies, uh, turn the other cheek. They'll say, no, 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 no. You you can't teach a boy to become a man by teaching him to turn the other cheek. Jesus is way more like William Wallace from the movie Braveheart than he is like Mister Rogers or Mother Teresa. Okay, but you said they explicitly reject that because, I mean, that's yeah. literally there. It's in the text. <laughs> so it doesn't right apply there. to this moment, right? Because this moment, uh, whatever moment we find ourselves in, is always, uh, you know, the stakes are always eternally high. Uh, the stakes in terms of uh, protecting Christianity, protecting Christian America. So, and, and so there's always a battle. And in a war— you don't need that gentleness. And that's fine for women. That's fine for kind of the softer side. But for men who are charged with protecting faith, family, and nation, that doesn't apply, not okay, in this moment. So this is really tied into this apocalyptic vision that these are the end times, that we are coming to the final battle. And, 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 that's, and that's what they're talking about. 
It often is. It dovetails very nicely with that uh, kind of apocalyptic strand, but it also applies to the sense, uh, much more immediate, that America, you know, this end of white Christian America. We're looking at demographic declines. There's been a constant refrain since the 1960s that uh, America is becoming less Christian, that, that American Christians are embattled. And so it actually applies very directly to the, the, the more immediate concerns of the fate of Christian America. So this is fascinating to me because you're talking about data from 20 years ago that 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 if everybody had been more familiar with, they perhaps would not have been like me as surprised by yeah. the enthusiasm with which even white evangelicals embraced Donald Trump. I mean, that seemed to sort of come out of nowhere. But you're saying this was this this the ground had been laid for this a long time ago. This was a long time coming. Exactly. When I heard evangelicals in the fall of 2016 defending their support for Donald Trump, you know, the, the, the media was at a loss. Some evangelicals were at a loss. How could white evangelicals support this, this guy? You know, the family values evangelicals, the moral majority. But the language that I heard them use to defend their support mirrored exactly the rhetoric I had read in these books on Christian manhood, that we need a protector. I mean, evangelicals called Donald Trump their ultimate fighting champion, and Donald Trump promised to be just that for them. And he was he was God-given, anointed by God to fulfill this role precisely because he didn't embody traditional Christian virtue, tr precisely because he was crass, he was reckless, he was not going to be cowed by political correctness. And so he was the perfect man for this moment. So I want to talk about the, the sort of the, 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 the gender breakdown here, because you're describing this, this belief that God made men to be warriors, gave them, you know, filled them up with testosterone so they could defend their families, their faith and their nation. But the women are supposed to be the nurturers, right? The, yes. the all those fruits of the spirit that we often think of as Christian love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are in this worldview, those are feminine virtues. Yes. So that's exactly what happens. The fruit of the mm. Spirit largely gets defined as feminine qualities, perfectly lovely for the ladies, right? Um, but it's up to men. This and 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 their, uh, you know, this is why God gave them testosterone, uh, is so that they can be aggressive and channel that aggression to protect the vulnerable, to protect women and children, to protect the faith. Okay, so where does John Wayne come into this? The name, the title of your book is Jesus and John Wayne. So yeah. talk to me so about I, John Wayne. When I was reading all of these books, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of books on how to be a Christian man that, that have published in the last decades, and some of these are massive bestsellers. Uh, and what I quickly came to see was that uh, for all their talk of, uh, you know, being a, a guide to Christian masculinity or an evangelical self-identify, you know, first and foremost as Bible-believing Christians, there weren't a whole lot of Bible verses in these books, actually, and they were kind of cherry-picked. Uh, instead, these authors were looking to mythical heroes for their model of Christian manhood to men like John Wayne, right? This on-screen icon. Uh, and John Wayne was, was so perfect uh, because he, he, he really came to symbolize conservative white masculinity in the 1960s and 1970s in opposition to the hippies, to the left, to the counterculture. He stood for 
quote-unquote traditional American masculinity. He was the good guy with the gun, the good white guy with the gun. And he would bring order through violence by subduing usually on screen non-white populations. So he, he against the, the the Native Americans in the Wild West, against the the Mexicans in the Alamo, against the Vietnamese, the Japanese, right? All of his greatest hits. And and he came to symbolize this rugged, violent, if necessary, white patriarchal authority that in the 60s and 70s for conservatives and for conservative evangelicals seemed to be the answer to the social disorder that that threatened uh, the social order. And, and Mel Gibson's William Wallace and Braveheart's also very, very popular. They- very popular, yes. And, and, you know, if I could have found a way to squeeze in Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart in the title, I may have gone in that direction. Uh, evangelicals love the movie Braveheart. Uh, since the 1990s, they have just embraced this film. They play clips in sermons. I mean, uh, Christian colleges have dorms named after Braveheart. He's the warrior who who will lead the charge. And again, violence may be necessary, will be necessary to defend women, to defend uh, the nation, to defend the faith. Yeah, I, I, I need to mention this because probably some of our listeners will recall this. When I had my my radio show back back in the day, I often used that. The freedom clip from Braveheart is one of the intros. So he, uh, you know, that's so. This rugged warrior evangelical man is is not particularly formed by the what I would think of as the traditional Christian virtues: love, right. gentleness, self control, loving one's neighbor. That's that is just not what the model is. Exactly. And, okay. Right. And that's that's the significance of John Wayne too, right? So it's a secular yeah. kind of icon who uh, becomes a model of Christianity. Uh, and we're sort of going over this again. But again, so if, if you understand this, you understand that, that evangelicals didn't support Trump despite their beliefs, but because yeah. of their beliefs. This is why your stuff is so valuable. It's sort of like, ah, okay. Yeah. You know, I was wondering, how do you ignore so much of your faith? How do you set it aside? How do you, and your point is, no, 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 this is, they have been prepped for this. This is exactly. really right in their wheelhouse. Exactly. That that really is the big takeaway. And I think that's why this book has resonated so powerfully with evangelicals themselves. I mean, this this book came out more than a year ago. Within days, I started getting letters. Um, people assume I get a lot of hate mail. I actually don't. Uh, I I get uh, several letters every week, often several a day from evangelicals themselves saying, this is the story of my life. Thank you for helping me to see. So you were in, back in 2016, you were working on a book on Hillary Clinton's faith. So, I mean, that's yes. why you were sort of you know, tied in all of this. And so you were watching in real time how white evangelicals were slowly shifting over to Trump, even while their some of their leaders were publicly a little bit more skeptical. But you saw the momentum building through the mm-hmm. convention. And so the, when Access Hollywood tape came out, I mean, the conventional wisdom was, okay, well, that's it, right? I mean, the family mm-hmm. value crowd is not going to stick with him here, but obviously they did. I mean, the polls would suggest that uh, somehow it's something like 81% uh, of white evangelicals supported him. So talk to me about that, how that yes. that moment, that access Hollywood tape caused everything sort of to click into place for you. Yeah, but, but you're right. You're right. As, as early as uh, August 2015, 
we saw uh, surveys pointing to white evangelical support for Trump. And at that point, it was grassroots support, right? The leaders were not on board. It took several months for the leaders to come on board. But in, in a large sense, we have to see this as, as a not just popular, but populist movement. Uh, and that that momentum just grew over the course of the next year. You know, more and more leaders get on board. First, Jerry Falwell Jr. and people like Robert Jeffress. And then more and more the, uh, the more mainstream, respectable leaders. Um, and then, uh, and then, in October, we had the Access Hollywood tape release. And yeah, everybody kind of stopped inside the evangelical world, outside what's going to happen now. And and it was it was startling to many. A, a, a few voices spoke out powerfully against it. Beth Moore was one. But for the most part, you know, a couple other leaders uh, wavered. People like Wayne Grudem, uh, a, a popular conservative evangelical theologian, uh, wavered, uh, withdrew his support, prayed about it, and then was right back there within a week. And so, um, yeah, I think that was a, a, a super crystallizing moment for so many evangelicals. It made visible what was already there, and it made perfectly clear uh, where things were going to go. And I think that was a, a critical moment for many evangelical leaders on both sides of this divide. And, you know, we're, we're still really living with that deep divide today within evangelicalism. So on the, on the very first page of your book, you you recount that that story, rather than a famous story, of, of Trump declaring that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. And he said that at your alma mater in Iowa. Yes. I went to a small Christian college in Northwest Iowa, Dort College, now Dort University. And uh, that's where that's where he he made that that famous uh, statement. And, you know, I, so I was watching. I wasn't there in person. I was watching the live stream. And up until that point, I had heard a lot of little clips from, you know, some of the most egregious things that Donald Trump would say would get a lot of airtime, kind of go viral. Uh, it was actually much more chilling to me to watch a speech in its entirety and to watch my community, my hometown, right? my people respond with enthusiasm to that. It was it was jarring. And uh, and I think that's the reaction that so many evangelicals have had. Again, the, the community is divided. And I think this kind of 81, 19% is a fairly accurate uh, uh, depiction of, of, of where that division falls. But uh, for those in the 19 percent, I think still a lot of shock, uh, a lot of horror, and a lot of introspection. How did we get to this point? Okay, so here's another area of cognitive dissonance that I'm, I'm trying to understand. You, you very clearly lay out the cultural anxiety behind a lot of this, the sense that, you know, Christian America is under attack, that our values are under attack. And as you point out in 1960s, in the 60s, the threats came from, you know, the civil rights protesters, particularly for the Southern evangelicals, the protests against the war, the hippies, um, you know, this was portrayed as imperiling the nation's safety and, and, and virtue and, and the fight against communism. Then in the seventies, it was the feminists. By the eighties, it was the gay rights movement. Um, but so there's all of this sort of sense of real menace from mm -hmm. the left. And yet at the same time, one of the most potent themes that you're seeing is that liberals are unmanly. So you know, <laughs> uh, uh, other Republicans have ridiculed unmanly, wimpy liberals before Trump. But Trump has really leaned into this, right, that, yeah. that, that it's really a test between unmanly, wimpy liberals and manly conservatives. But yet those wimpy unmanly liberals are also this existential threat to our way of life, right? I mean, they have to hold those two thoughts at the same time. 
It's it's hard. It's hard. Uh, you know, a, a part of the, the threat of liberals is uh, it's, it's different than the threat of radical Islam, for example, because you know, if you if we carry this through the two thousands, right. then the enemy becomes radical Islam, and and yeah. there, there's a certain kind of um, uh, masculinity that's that uh, you know American men and American Christians have to stand up against. But yeah, with liberals, it's a different kind of threat. It's the this uh, influence of liberal ideas that will emasculate because liberal men are so weak that if they are able to influence uh, red-blooded American manhood, then uh, all American men are going to be weak like liberals, not able to step up and defend the nation, not able to lead their families. Uh, They're always linking the authority of men within the home. So this kind of traditional conservative patriarchal understanding of male headship, male leadership, they link that directly to men's ability to lead churches and to lead the nation and to fight to defend the nation. So the threat of liberals is really just this this emasculating culture that boys in America won't grow up to be strong men who can use violence when necessary. So I want to get to the using violence when necessary as part of the masculinity. But you know, we were focusing here on on evangelical Christianity and, and the roots of some of this there. But there, there is an aspect of this that has nothing to do with with religion. I have a, I have yes. a book here in my on my shelf, the, the War Against Boys. Uh, you know, came out a few years ago. Um, you know, th- there has been a debate about whether or not young men, boys, in, in fact, are being disadvantaged or discriminated against. They're they're, they're clearly you know, and and many of the traits that we used to thought of as boys being boys are now you know being uh, stigmatized, uh, castigated for, uh, canceled for. So there mm-hmm. was almost inevitably wasn't there going to be a backlash anytime that you have a dominant group that is pushed aside in a relatively rapid way over a period of just a few decades, you're going to have some kind of a backlash. And, and we, totally separate from totally separate from what's been happening with evangelical Christianity. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say totally separate because I'll say that book was very popular in conservative evangelical circles, right? There is this this uh, uh, kind of alliance that we see formed uh, from the 1960s and on across religious differences around this cultural ideal of masculinity. So uh, secular conservatives unite with conservative evangelicals, conservative right. Catholics, and uh, certain uh, factions in the LDS church as well, uh, right? around this this cultural ideal so that that becomes uh, kind of uh, the source of your identity and not theological beliefs. And that, I think, actually explains much of uh, our political landscape over the last half century or so, this cultural uh, kind of coming together around issues like gender, like militarism, whereas theological unity really matters very little around traditional doctrines uh, and and things that had traditionally been important in, in terms of shaping religious identity. Okay, so it's all it's all cosplay and bravado and, and rhetorical until it becomes real. Yes. Um, what we're seeing in real time, though, is the is the glorification of this young seventeen year old boy from yeah. in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who killed people. So we're talking about the actual acts of violence and people like J.D. Vance praising Rittenhouse as a strong man who can rise up and defend America. This relates directly to what you're talking about, because, I mean, Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance and Madison Cawthorn are all really 
have deep ties to evangelical Christianity, don't they? I mean, this is not, Mm -hmm. we're not talking about, these are not one-offs. No, no, right. Madison Cawthorn homeschooled, attended uh, uh, Patrick Henry College, a school for homeschoolers, comes from deep within this culture, a culture that has really, really promoted this this vision of of masculinity and and, and set masculinity against femininity. Uh, women are to be submissive, uh, and and men are to be these aggressive leaders. That that runs deep in conservative evangelical homeschool culture. You know, Holly too. He has this new podcast on. Um, on families and, and parenting, and he attends an evangelical church, and he's been steeped in this this theological tradition. Uh, J.D. Vance, uh, a little less steeped in this, uh, but also uh, certainly shaped uh, by this. Uh, but but not just uh, evangelicalism here too. We kind of see this um, uh, this connection to more secular strands uh, that uh, that are promoting the same ideals. So somebody like Jordan Peterson, right? We we have to talk about yeah. and and what we see, you know. So Jordan Peterson, this idea that men need to be monsters and that moms need to raise their boys to be monsters, that's that's straight from, from Jordan Peterson. What do and they so mean by that? What do they what, mean? What, what monster, they, they, the, you know, Jordan Peterson's an articulate guy. He's a learned yeah. man. So yes. he's chosen the word monster with yeah. a certain intentionality. What does he mean by that? That men need to be dangerous. Men need aggression. Aggression is a really good thing, and our society will crumble if we do not allow men to channel this aggression. So it has to be channeled. It has to be controlled. But if you stifle it in any way, then you aren't going to have the heroic masculinity that is necessary when push comes to shove. And in, in, in again, the moment is always there. There's always a justification for this. And, and our moment right now is no different. It sort of reminds me of the Sean Parnell, um, who is a Republican candidate for Senate, everybody knows this, who just dropped out this week, you know, after allegations that he had abused his wife. And he he was was one of these that kept pushing the lines, you know, that that, you know, the men, you know, the role of men was to protect women from dinosaurs. Shows a little bit about his historical knowledge. But this was the same sort of thing that you needed to be strong to defend women, to be aggressive. But so so Jordan Peterson talks about men needing to be uh, controlled monsters. And so he says, if you're harmless, you're not virtuous. Yes. Which is a fascinating definition of virtue because, you know, my, my sons went to uh, Jesuit high school where the I think one of the slogans or the, the themes was men in service of others. And and there was a theme of what it meant to be a man that is so diametrically opposed to the monster theme, which is that mm-hmm. that that men are role models, men are you know are are patient, men men know how to lose um, with with grace. Uh, the concept of sportsmanship, all of that is thrown out. So you know yes. one of the least manly things in the world was to be a sore loser, and yet you talked about this with uh, in your very interesting interview with Politico in the last week that people like Cawthorn and Holly who are supporting stop the steal and and instead of being regarded in this community as sore losers um they're this is an example that they are men standing up and fighting for liberty at all costs, right? So, I mean, that's the theme there. That That's the new definition of what it means to be a man. Exactly. So all of this is framed in terms of war, our current war, right? The culture wars against the left. Uh, so 
in this case, pro-Trump. And and in all of this, the ends justify the means. So forget sportsmanship. uh, Forget, forget, you know, being a good loser. Um, But I I do want to say all of what that you just pointed out there is really important to emphasize. Uh, that there are different models of masculinity out there. Historically, there are different models of Christian manhood, traditionally, right, in church history, and different models of Christian masculinity in American evangelicalism. Uh, in the 19th century, to be a, a Christian man was to exercise self-restraint, a gentlemanly self-restraint. Yes, that right. was true Christian manhood, right? And so it's really important because in this in this rhetoric that we hear from folks like Holly and Cawthorn, they're, they're presenting the, their iteration of masculinity as timeless, as eternal, as common sense, as given. And it is this aggressive form, but that is just one iteration. And in in some ways, we might even say an aberration of masculinity or of certainly of of Christian manhood when we have a historical perspective. Well, just one last thought on this, that one of the definitions of of manhood used to be that if you were a father, you would teach your, your, your son um, what it meant to be a man and how being a man was different than being, say, a bully, yes. that there was a very clear line between being the bully on the playground or the whiner on the playground and being manly. And now the this this conflation of manhood with with being a bully is really quite extraordinary. Uh, you know, even leaving aside uh, Christianity, just, you know, good sportsmanship, just being a good person. And, and this is, and I, I think I wrote this a couple of years ago um, before I'd seen your book, but it, this is a very difficult time now to raise boys because mm-hmm. there used to be kind of a clear view of what you wanted young men to grow up to be. And now look at the role models that, that they're being shown, look at the values they're being shown. And it really, it feels as if there's been a really tectonic shift over the last several decades and like, okay, instead of teaching you to be sensitive, to be a good sport, let's teach you to be a monster, to be a bully, uh, to, uh, to, to smash back. Let's, uh, let's hold up the example of a young man who kills somebody as opposed to a young man who makes, uh, who is in service of others. I mean, this is, this is a rather dramatic moment in our culture and, and in the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a hard time to raise boys. It's a hard time to raise girls too. I, I'm trying to do both <laughs> right now, and uh, but then the solutions that are presented, right? That they're 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 not necessarily some of the solutions uh, make the problem worse, right? Or where we have this. Uh, because uh, this model of, of you know, being a monster or uh, Holly will set up the, the the challenges facing our boys in this modern culture and we've got porn and we've got video games and and the, you know the truth is there are a lot of challenges to raising boys and to raising girls in terms of our social media culture in terms of our our economic situation in 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 terms of you know higher education and there are so many challenges um, uh, but that doesn't justify this kind of reactionary um, model of masculinity, which arguably could end up making things much worse for individual boys. Because the truth is, all of these models of militant masculinity, uh, in in reality, very few men live into those ideals. And so what was striking in my research is talking to evangelical men who grew up in these spaces, who encountered these ideals of warrior masculinity, so many of them 
were uh, just couldn't live into them, couldn't live up to them. They they didn't want to go climb climb a mountain on the weekend. They they'd rather go to an art museum. They felt like second class Christians. They told me, um, and they felt like not real men. And many of these men ended up walking away from evangelical churches or walking away from Christianity itself because they could not fit themselves into that uh, narrow box. And so I think that's worth thinking about too. When we think about what is masculinity, what is what do uh, American boys need uh, to be very careful about creating some artificial boxes and then trying to force people into them. So while we're we're talking, I'm thinking about this that uh, in, in in Josh Hawley's critique of what's wrong with with young men, and look, there, there are significant problems. I mean, young men are more likely to be uh, you know addicted to drugs, to die of drugs. Young men are more likely to be involved in violence, uh, drop out of school. Um, there, I mean, there, you could make a case that there is a crisis for young men. But you know, he's talking about in particular, you know, young men who spend time, um, you know, playing video games, and that they need to come out and come out of that and become these warriors, uh, th- these these warriors and these these monsters. It strikes me as that that's in in many ways what a lot of those young men are doing, right? I mean, that they they sit in their mother's basement to use a cliche. Um, and they fantasize that, in yeah. fact, they are warriors. They fantasize that they are monsters. This is exactly what they are doing <laughs> when they are playing the video game. This makes them feel that they are powerful. This makes exactly. them feel that they can destroy things. So somehow, um, in, in many ways, he's offering kind of just a mirror image of fantasy world that has nothing to do with real manhood. Exactly. Uh, Until that fantasy gets acted out in reality, right? And I think that's this moment that we're facing right now. Uh, You mentioned the Stop the Steal uh, uh, movement and uh, somebody like Josh Hawley and Madison Cawthorn. Madison Cawthorn gave a speech at the Stop the Steal rally. Uh, uh, before the January 6th insurrection. And um, part of the context here is the fact that, you know, this rhetoric is not new, this culture wars language, this warrior masculinity is not new. What we are facing right now is we have the the variable of Trump kind of destabilizing everything, but also you have demographic changes, which mean that uh, white Christians are no longer going to be in the majority. Uh, and, And so there is a new questioning of democracy in terms of getting us where we need to go, getting the nation where it needs to go. Because if you no longer have the majority or if you're looking at at no longer having the majority, uh, maybe democracy isn't sacred. And I think that's what makes our current moment so dangerous is that many conservatives and conservative white Christians are now rethinking uh, democracy, things like voter suppression, the stop the steal. You know, I think we have like 60% Hmm. of white evangelicals who think the election was stolen. And of those, 39% think that violence may be necessary to save the country. This is from a very recent PRI poll. Yeah. No, I saw that. I mean, 39%. Now, now let's, you know probably admit the vast majority of those people are just blowing hot air, but you don't need a huge percentage of no. Americans believing in violence for things to get very dangerous. Speaking of which, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse as hero, Kyle Rittenhouse yes. as role model, whether you think this will have an effect because it appears that you have right-wing media from Tucker Carlson all the way up to um, the former guy in, in Mar-a-Lago 
who are all in on Kyle Rittenhouse as uh, the, the, the new model of American youth hero. Yes. And it's not just uh, kind of right wing media. It's 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 within evangelicalism, too. So I was just just reading a newsletter from Focus on the Family uh, that came a couple of days ago, oh, maybe just okay. yesterday. And it, it included an article that is holding up Kyle Rittenhouse as this uh, young, white, patriotic American boy. Focus who, on the family. Focus on the family. Oh, yes. God, yes. Oh and God. I saw, Jesus you know, on social media, Christ. many evangelical leaders responding to that verdict with uh, praise God, <laughs> glory to God that, that uh, you know, uh, that justice was done here. And, and it wasn't just, you know, that justice was done in some technical legal capacity, you know, arguments about self-defense. It really was celebrating that this good young man, white young man, uh, who did what needed to be done, who, who fulfilled the role that government failed to do. He was the hero. He, he was the monster and he channeled that appropriately. So, so it is open celebration in many conservative white evangelical spaces as well. He he did what Jesus would have done if he'd been in Kenosha with an AR-15. Yeah. I I don't, I, I, I'm sorry. That's just, but okay, here, how many of them though would think it's a good idea for one of their teenage children to take a weapon like that into a situation of urban disturbance. I mean, how much of this is just this kind of, you know, keyboard warrior stuff? Because I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the kind of people that, that I associate with focus on the family. Uh, how many of them would say, yeah, Ma, would you drive, you know, Sarah, you know, into, into downtown Milwaukee? Um, make sure she takes the AR-15. <laughs> And the Glock with her, you know, well, yes, I know she's only 17, but this is what Jesus, I mean, really? Well, people, that's not really Sarah's job, right? Right. That needs oh, to be popular. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. That was, my, yeah. that was my big mistake. <laughs> Tad. Tad. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, you're right. You know, for me, yes, keyboard warriors, sure. Uh, but but there's this, this strong underlying affinity. And this is where I think we're at, because the majority of white evangelicals also were not storming the Capitol on January right. 6th, right? But I was watching very closely in those circles. What was the response? The, the initial response was denial, uh, following Franklin Graham's example of, yeah, this is Antifa. This isn't who you think it is. Right. And then that was unsustainable. So then it was a lot of silence. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I started hearing, we don't condone violence, but, but. And then a whole lot of justification. And I think in the moment that we find ourselves in, the critical question is, where are these moderate evangelicals, you know, quote unquote moderate evangelicals going to fall? When push comes to shove in terms of, you know, an event like January 6th, in terms of stop the seal, in terms of the erosion of democratic norms and institutions, in terms of whatever is next, whatever event comes next, where are these moderate well, evangelicals going to fall? Well, what do you think? Where will they fall? Uh, I um, it is still an open question for me. I'm, I'm I'm watching things closely. I'm not optimistic right you've now. You've got a disappointment. I under, I understand it. So <laughs> I'm a historian. Some yeah. of the people that you mentioned at the very beginning who you know are our leaders, respected leaders of evangelical uh, Christianity. You know, people like Beth Moore. Uh, mm-hmm. They have spoken out against this. Yeah. They have pushed out against this. They have massive audiences. So they do. why have they not 
been able to break out of that 81-19? How yeah. come they have not been more effective? And by the way, I, I can tell that even somebody who's, who's studied this, who thinks about this all the time, like Peter Weiner, is still trying to work through yes. it. In fact, uh, our producer pointed out that uh, last time that Peter was on our podcast uh, earlier this month, he cited your research. Yeah. Talking about, you know, this this whole concept of, you know, men being ruthless and, and everything. People are trying to do it. So so why haven't these and these are very well known, very mm-hmm. well spoken, very respected members of the church. How come they haven't broken out of the nineteen percent? Yeah, Beth Moore is a great example, Russell Moore, another example. And and in what we see in their cases, we're actually seeing across evangelicalism at the grassroots level and local church local organizations, you see the same sort of thing where you're going to have courageous voices speaking out against this ideology, speaking out against this radicalization. And what happens time and again is they end up getting nudged out of their churches, their organizations. Sometimes they're forced. Uh, I've talked to many pastors who have been, who, who've lost their pulpits, talk to people in evangelical organizations who've been fired. Often it just becomes so miserable that they, they end up leaving enough is enough. And so what we see happening is, yes, we've got courageous voices speaking out. We've got approximately 19% who are cheering them on. But in terms of institutions, we see very little change. And in fact, when people like Beth Moore and Russell Moore leave the SBC, when local kind of resistors leave their local churches, uh, the result is further radicalization because those those dissenters are no longer there, and that's the pattern I'm seeing. I'm also seeing in terms of, and we have to we have to talk about evangelicalism not just in terms of institutions and churches, but as this massive culture, right? Consumer culture. Uh, so somebody like Gilbert is is publishing all these these you know popular you know works of fiction, and you've got Christian radio, and you've got this Christian publishing industry, and all of that Christian music, Christian radio, and in those spaces too there are gatekeepers. And if you start speaking out against Donald Trump, start speaking out against you know this reactionary politics, what happens is you're going to be shut down mm-hmm. because that's not good for profits. That's You're going to alienate your consumers. You're alienating the base. And so there is this silencing that is going on across evangelicalism, all kinds of pressure to fall in line uh, or at least just shut up. And, and that's what concerns me so much, that even though you've got powerful voices of dissent, uh, they end up being uh, uh, marginalized, and uh, the status quo continues, and if anything, more radicalization. It's a fantastic book. The book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Dumay. Thank you so much for coming on the Bulwark Podcast. Appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you so much. And have a great Thanksgiving. You too. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back next Monday. We will do this all over again.